Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Try that a third time. Uh, it's, I always have technical problems. It's me, not the team. So I apologize for that. Um, my notes just disappeared because that's been how it works, right? Yep, they did. <laughs> yeah, wing it. Nice. Uh, not this weekend. Uh, the Word document that has my uh, Leviticus 625. Can you just text it to me from there? Thank you. Um, <laughs> they were just right here. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about Jesus today. Um, from the passage I was planning on, we just have to figure out how to get it. Um, oh, that's even better. Look at you. Thank you. Sorry, everyone. So we just had an amazing wedding yesterday, and it was f fantastic, and we've been kind of getting everything set back up to normal, which has been awesome, and then we just have had a couple little bumps in the road along the way, and uh, apparently my notes actually landing on my iPad has been one of them, so there they are, boom. All right. Hey, um, so if I haven't met you yet, my name is Bobby, and really grateful that you're here. Sorry for the last two minutes. That's not normally what things are like. Um, one thing I want to point out, uh, actually that Hannah just pointed out to me a second ago that I think is amazing, is that we had this wedding last night. If you know Gabby and Andres, they are officially married. I know I did it. I heard him say I do. It's true. Uh, so that's super awesome. Um, they're not here. They can't hear you applaud, but it's still worth it because it's just amazing. We were really excited to see um, that and... Um, just coming into today, you know, a lot of our worship team, uh, Hannah, Kale, Ellers were just uh, really involved in the wedding, so they weren't uh, leading worship today. And we had an all-college worship team up here. Did you notice that? And so, yes, and they did fantastic. I thought that was really awesome. And uh, one thing, you know, that a lot of times it's said about our church, is like, man, this place is just all college students. And that's not true. There's a lot of college students, and then the, everybody else looks like they're in college. And so just the nature of that, even myself. Um, the, the thing about, though, today that I think was just amazing is we had, we had one lone Moody student, Megan, uh, who was playing guitar. And the thing I love about Megan is that she is a great example. She's a senior at Moody, and she is a student that hasn't just come and sat and left, but has made this her church home and gotten involved and gotten connected and really made, been part of church. And that's been phenomenal to see. Everyone else were DePaul students. And the reason why I'm pointing that out was because when New Life Lincoln Park first was planted, the vision was, part of the vision was, yes, to reach this community, but also to reach DePaul. And so to really serve and minister and connect with DePaul students. And so to see almost an entire worship team full of DePaul students was just a reminder of what God is doing and how that vision's coming to fruition. And it's just really cool to see. So kudos to our students. Who's all from DePaul here? Let me see your hands. Look at that. Yeah, phenomenal. And, and, okay, who's all for Moody? We want to make sure that we, yes, yeah, so that we do love you too. So we want to make sure that we're, uh, but I just think that is just absolutely phenomenal. And so we really appreciate um, this, the young men and women that make part of this church. And again, everybody else that looks like they're, you know, that they look like they're in college, they're possibly not, but you saw how many that are, and we're really grateful for that. Um, join me in Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. This is on page 103 uh, in the Pew Bible. And so if you're going to turn there, or if not, I'll have it on the screen, but you can turn there, click to there. 
Um, the, such an amazing ceremony last night. I'm really grateful to uh, just be a part of that with Gabby and Andres. I'm just going to put my cards on the table and be really honest. I've been sick the last few days. And so if I abruptly run out of the room, it's because what's going to come out isn't praise enough. It's something else. And so um, should be okay, but it's just been one of those weeks. And um, just being honest, um, where it's it's one of those weeks. And so, but grateful to be here and grateful for what we get to talk about. And so I'm going to pray and ask that God would speak and everything would be okay this morning. And um, just thank him for being with us. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that um, you are in control. And even when we see little hiccups within the program and things like that, whatever it might be, we're just reminded of the fact that we are frail humanity and that we need you desperately. And I thank you, God, that within our frailty, within our bumbling, within our mistakes, within our trying really hard but not always making it work, that you love us like crazy. Um, We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And God, we thank you that even when some people won't extend that grace and mercy to us, that you never stop extending it to us. I pray that you would let us know that this morning, Uh, how much you love us, how much you care for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, So we are actually coming up to the end of a series in the book of Leviticus. I've been super excited about this and just being able to do it over the last couple months. Um, And right here at the end with these last few chapters, and um, we've kind of been talking about the first half of Leviticus is all about how they would come to the tabernacle, how they would worship the Lord, how they would come into his presence. And the back half is, okay, when you leave the tabernacle, when you leave his presence, and now you're going out into the land, what does it look like to live for him and to be his people and to be holy as he is holy? And so the section that we're coming to today is a little bit interesting because it's really just this long section of legislation, And I know when I say that, your immediate response might be, well, that sounds boring. But really, this isn't. It is fascinating. And when we think about what God is communicating to this entire people group about how they live their lives, and not only how they live their lives, but how they manage their resources, how they manage their finances, and what happens when things get hard, what happens when things become a struggle, what happens when things become overwhelming, Or maybe when we don't experience any of those things, but we're connected and we see people that do, then how do we manage that? How do we interact with that? I mean, let's just see if today is going to be applicable to anybody. Has anybody ever had to deal with money? Okay, maybe a few of you. Has anybody ever had to deal with debt at all? Okay, that means today is going to be practical to you. Anybody ever hear politicians or governments or business people talk about how other people should handle their debt and finances and things like that? This is going to be practical for you. And so we don't want to write this off as just boring Old Testament legislation. Why is he making us listen to this? We need to see this as the grace and care of the Lord. And so what I want to do is kind of unpack and kind of talk about what's happening in Leviticus 25 and then make a couple points that I think are really important as far as the implications of it for us as people. And so first off, what happens in Leviticus 25 is it explains the Sabbath year. Not the Sabbath day, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the idea that six days one will work, and then the seventh thou shalt take, take Sabbath, you shall rest. Not that seventh day, 
but the seventh year. Six years we work, six years, but then the seventh year is different. So it says in Leviticus 25, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. So this is an agricultural-based society. This, they would connect with this. This isn't you know, typically what we're used to, but this is normal for them. Go out, harvest, prune, do what you need to do to get the crops in. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and for the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. And so as they go into the promised land, they are allowed to, they are to allow the land to rest every seven years in the same way that as people they are to rest. For an entire year, they're not to harvest. The, the, the crops are going to grow. They're going to grow naturally so they can go out and get what they need. But they're not to do that intense work to harvest the land. No pruning, no picking. Just get what they need. They can't work it. Now, we don't live in an agricultural-based environment, so it's hard to grasp how important this would be. But it would be amazing rest and rejuvenation for the land, for the nature around it, and for the workers to have that time away from what they would do. So this is an amazing... Think about the reality of that. You are not going to work this land for a year, and you're just going to trust God to provide for you from what it naturally gives, and then you'll go back to working it in six years. We, our mind is kind of hard to grasp the significance of somebody telling us, don't work for a year at your job. Trust the Lord to provide you, and he will do that. But in this society, the land needed the rest. The land needed the rest. And so Sabbath year is put in. Then it goes in after this, and starting in verse 8, and explains the jubilee year. The jubilee year. Now, this is like the Sabbath year, supersized. Uh, the, the, the amount of difference in this one is hard to comprehend again in our non-agricultural society. But it says in verse 8, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. That's the key. On the 50th year, I think I have, there's a little bit of tinging in the sound. The, on the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines 
for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So after, remember, Sabbath year, they would work for six years, and then the seventh year would be a Sabbath. So seven Sabbath years, 49 years later, plus one, the celebratory trumpets would blast throughout the land, welcoming in this year of jubilee. The text says that they are to proclaim liberty throughout the land. This is the message going to all people. All of them would know it. Everybody would hear it. Everyone expected to celebrate. Liberty is here. Leviticus scholar Jay Sklar says this, Liberty here refers to releasing people from debts that have caused them to sell either their property or themselves. In either case, release meant that all Israelites would have a fresh start, returning to their own property, surrounded by their closest relatives. This language of it would a time of fresh starts, fresh start, debt is forgiven. People who had to enter indentured service would be released. We hear the language in here about slavery, and it's very easy in our U.S. history to superimpose the horrendous evils of slavery in our history onto what we see in Leviticus. But it's not the same thing. Same word, but not the same concept. And there were many people that within this, that they would get dis, uh, disheartened, or they would fall on bad luck, irresponsibility, whatever it might be, they might have to enter themselves into a slavery type of a thing, indentured service type of a thing to pay off their debt or something like that. So it's a different environment, different treatment, different what we know. The evils of our history are real as far as our country, even if some people want to deny that. But what we see in Leviticus is something different. Does that make sense? So just to clarify that, we need to clarify it. So within this, not only are they an agricultural-based society where land needs to be refreshed, but they are the family unit and the community are central to what makes them strong and who they are. They are, we, they are not a hyper-individualistic-based society the way we are. They are a communal society, a family society. And so for people to fall on horrible times, either by ill or by irresponsibility, whatever the reason for them to have to go into this servitude would mean leaving their family to go to another area, to go to with another family and have to work for them. And after seven years of seven, seven times seven years of doing that, if they still weren't able to pay off their debts, if they still were in this on the 50th year, then it was, okay, go back to your family. Go back to your land. It's time to refresh. It's time to restart. Now you can go back to what you knew. And there were very specific commands within this that to help them to obey God directives here and not take advantage to one another. For example, it says in verse 17, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. As a community, as a people, they were collectively called to give the community a fresh start. The idea of, yes, what this would do for the individual, but this is about community here. We can't read this like Americans with our hyper-individualism. We have to read this like ancient Israel that was community-based. What this would do for the people for Jubilee to happen. 
what it would mean for community, for these debts to be waived, for people to be restored to their family, to be restored to their home, for fresh starts to happen. That's why it was Jubilee. Now, you might be wondering, as I did as I was reading through the chapter, okay, how are they going to eat? <laughs> I mean, if they can't harvest and they can't do this, how are they going to eat during this Jubilee year? Well, God anticipates both our question and also the need. And he says in verse 18, Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, asking the question we're thinking, what shall we eat in the seventh year? It may not sow or gather in our crop. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. So it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crops arrives. A lot of numbers in there, but what is basically God saying? In the sixth year, I'm going to give you three times what you normally would harvest. And you're going to be able to hold on to that until the crop comes from the ninth year after the year of Jubilee. God knows what we need. God, know, God is putting this expectation on them. And he's giving them exactly what they need to fulfill it. He's giving them, this is what the community needs on this 50th year. And I'm not going to give you something to do that's impossible for you to do. I'm going to give you exactly what you need to accomplish it. Now, the rest of the chapter tells them how to navigate the Jubilee. And we're not going to go into all of the details of the remaining 30 verses. There's a lot there. But I do want to point out two things that I think are really important within this section of how they handle the Jubilee. First off, God reminds them that, they, that everything is his and they are stewards. This is his land. They are his people. And we need to be reminded of that reality as well. Excuse me, it says in Leviticus 25, verses 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold in per perpetuity, for the land is mine, God says. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. There's, there's this attitude that it's all God's, and we're not going to just keep trying to work it and work it and get profit and get more and more and more and more without caring about it. There's something about managing and caring for what God has given us. And he, if anything, this idea of the Jubilee is this reset of the community after some have probably done exceptionally well, and that's no problem with that, and have done, some have done exceptionally poor for ill or for not. God is reminding all of them, no, it's mine. This is mine. This is my land, and you are my people. And this is something that he repeats throughout Scripture. For example, in one spot, I, Psalm 89, the heavens are ours, the earth, excuse me, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. It's all God's, and he wants them to see that. That's my typo. It should be the heavens are yours. Um, the second thing that, just, that these last 30 verses lets us know is this. The Jubilee acknowledged that some people will become poor but it doesn't hold, withhold liberty from anyone. It acknowledges that there's a reality that some people will find themselves in these situations, 
But never throughout this do we see, but don't let them have liberty. Remember, it said, let liberty be proclaimed throughout the land. It doesn't say, but except don't let these people hear it. Or don't let these people hear it if they've done this. No, let liberty be proclaimed. We see this phrase, if your brother becomes poor. It's repeated multiple times in this section. But we don't know why they became poor. We don't know if they were just unluckily. We don't know if they haven't worked hard. We don't know if they were irresponsible. We don't know if they were taken advantage of. There's no indication. But what is indicated is that every 50 year, God wants to, liberty to be given. And he wants debts to be forgiven. He wants liberty from being away from your family to happen. He wants communities to be restored. He wants hardships to end so that people can restart. And he doesn't withhold that from somebody because of why they might be in the situation in the first place. And so the Jubilee acknowledges that some people will find themselves in a situation where they have become poor, but he doesn't withhold liberty from anyone. So we look at this again. This is not how our world, uh, it's definitely not Chicago. And so in our industrial, technological, advanced society, this is, sounds very unusual in different ways. But we have to remember, ancient Israel was living in a different time, in a different place. And so God is speaking to them into the reality of their culture and what's happening and what it means to be his people at that time. And one of the things we've said throughout this series is, no, no, because of what Jesus has done in the New Testament and what we see is death on the cross and his resurrection. And he tells us, I have come, I have fulfilled the law. We are not bound to pattern our life after what we see in the ancient law in Leviticus, the way Israel did. We're free from this. However, God was guiding his people during this time to be holy as he is holy. And so as we've said, the law reflects God's character through these laws. It reflects God's character and who he is and how he wants his people to be. So we need to learn from that. So whatever this is saying about God's character, I don't, we don't have the year of Jubilee today. But the reasons why, we need to consider and practice. Does that difference make sense? And so what are some things that I think are really important to consider being the people of God from this idea of the year of Jubilee? Well, first off is this. God wants his people to care for all people. God wants his people to care for all people. A couple of weeks ago, we talked, at the whole, the, talked about the holiness code. This was uh, Leviticus 19, and it's the central chapter of Leviticus. Some would say one of the central chapters of all of the Torah. And the whole idea of that is don't be like the Egyptians where you came from. Don't be like the Canaanites where you're going. Not from any of the cultures around you, but follow my statutes. God tells them, be holy as I am holy. And that's one of the things we've talked about. If you say that you follow Jesus, then the thing that should be most important to you in how you make decisions, how you go about your life, how you navigate your day-to-day, is what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? That's not like a peripheral side thing. That's the main thing. We're to be like Jesus, and he is the embodiment of holiness. He is holy, so we're to be holy like him. Does that make sense? And so in Leviticus 19, within this, go back, if you haven't read it yet, go back and read the whole thing. 
and see all the different things it talks about, how the practical reality of being holy. But there's three times in this chapter where, again, if this is what holiness looks like, what it tells us is holiness does this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings from your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for the traveler. I am the Lord your God. You're not going to take every single thing from the crop. Think about like the size and they kind of come and cut and it makes that circular kind of pattern and there might be some on the edges. He's saying, don't go and get every single thing. Leave the edges for those who can come along and get what they need. Leave the edges for those who don't have anything and who are struggling and who are traveling or the immigrant, whatever that might be. Let them go and get the stuff on the edges. Care about the poor with what you have is how holiness is described. It says in Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You should not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so the idea of what does it mean to be holy as he is holy is that we don't look down on the poor and we don't think the rich are better. Even James talks about this, that we don't treat people differently based on where they're at in life. Leviticus 19, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. A lot of times when people hear this idea about helping the poor and helping others, we get this kind of framework of, well, but they're talking about Christians. They're talking about help those who are also of faith. The Bible doesn't make that clarification. It says, sure, to as best you can and to, have, to definitely try with the family of God, but it never says, but don't help people outside the family of God. And he's specifically making it here. The person who isn't part of the community, when they come in your midst, they need to find help and they need to find care. We, if the, to be a holy people means to care about people. If we say that we are followers of Jesus, then that means we have to care about people. And that means caring about people that you wouldn't normally hang out with, that we typically would avoid, that are probably at times super rude or super smelly or super just inappropriate or whatever that might be. But it doesn't matter because they're people and they need help. And so how do we help? And to say, well, I don't have to help is to be ungodly. Do you understand that? For somebody to say that they're a Christian and then to have no empathy or desire to help the poor, the disenfranchised, the immigrant, is to be ungodly. Because that's not how God presents his character. That's not how God presents himself. Yes, there's challenges within that. No, it's not carte blanche. Then we're going to get to that in a moment. But our disposition as the people of God is toward mercy. And our disposition as the people of God should be coming alongside the needy, the poor, and the disenfranchised. And the reality is, is that in church history, that's how it was. 
the first hospitals, the first any orphanages, all of that. Church. The church started that. The church is the one that came with those things. But today, how often in different places are those who say they, call, they claim to follow Jesus, but don't want to help in any way at all. We have to rethink the reality of who we are and how we think about our world and how we think about the systems and the th different things and opportunities before us. And as believers, are we championing the reality that people need help? And how do we help? Because the people of God, God wants his people to care for all people. The second thing I think that's really important when we think about this chapter in the year of Sabbath and year of Jubilee and interacting with the poor is this. And kind of go, if, if going off my first point, God wants his people to care for all people, then how do we process that? We must think like the people of God, not like Democrats or Republicans or the labels of conservative or liberal. Now, let me clarify what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to identify as any of those things. It's not wrong to vote as a Republican. It's not wrong to vote as a Democrat. It's not wrong to be an independent. I think that's one of the biggest misunderstandings in our world today, is that in our country today, is that people think everybody is either a Republican or a Democrat. But actually, if you look at the stats, 30% of the country identifies as being a Republican, 30% identify as Democrat, and the other 40 are, well, let's see this time. And so, but the loudest voices are always the one that gets the headlines. And so within that, it's okay, it's okay to be whichever one you identify with. It's wrong if you're a child of God to think that the other one is less of a child of God. If you find out a brother or sister votes differently than you and you think less of them than that, then you are judging them based on worldly values and not godly values. Now, I've had these conversations enough to know how somebody might react to that. And let me just clarify. I'm not attacking you. And I'm not attacking your party. And I'm not attacking your politics. What I'm saying is, you being a child of God is more important than that. And if you take me saying that as an attack you need to reevaluate your spiritual priorities because you are a child of God first and anything else second. And what it means to be a child of God should dictate how you do everything else and not vice versa. We, the, even the labels of conservative and liberal, there's nothing wrong with that, but if you've been around here, you've heard me use the phrase that labels make lazy thinkers. Where if I can just slap a label on it, well, this is liberal, or I can slap a label on it, this is conservative. Well, the fact that I have that label means it's automatically right or it's automatically wrong. And I don't actually stop and process and use discernment and ask, well, what does godliness look like here? Because the reality is, is there's some things in our world that Republicans would get really excited about and that conservatives would get really excited about that are truly biblical. And there's some that truly are not. And there's things that Democrats would get excited about and liberals would get excited about that are nowhere near being biblical. But there's some that are. And so when we just slap the labels on, we're not allowing our faith to be the thing that leads us. And this is so often that ha what happens. 
when it comes to interacting with the poor and those who are in need and who are disenfranchised. Tim Keller, in his book, um, I just went blank on it. Thank you. Ministries of Mercy. Casey recommended that book to me. It's amazing. He says, I was literally like, where's Casey? And she knew I was looking for In his book, he says this, the liberal tends to see all the poor as oppressed and thus does not see the importance of conditions in mercies of ministry. But the conservative tends to see all the poor as irresponsible and thus overemphasizes conditions in mercy. If you just put the label on, we become lazy thinkers. And so I challenge all of you, what does the year of Jubilee tell us? There are going to be some people who are poor. And we don't, and you ha- we have to go case by case to find out where they are, why they are. We can't just assume that a person's oppressed anymore. We can assume that they're irresponsible. And it might not be either one of those. But here's the thing. If you're the people of God, if you're a child of God, even the people that our culture and our government and our politics rejects as getting help still need help. And who are we as a people of God to say, no, I am not saying just shower money from the tops of streets to everybody. Because sometimes the help that somebody needs isn't financial. It's helping them help learn and make good decisions and process things. But you're not, we're not going to know that until we create avenues where people can figure out what's going on and get the help that they need. And the only way we can really passionately do that within a proper mindset is as the people of God. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the reality of any of our political, well, there are a lot wrong with our political parties, but I'm not saying there's anything wrong with identifying with our political parties, but there is something wrong with thinking that that's the most important thing. And to me, this is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest issues in our country today, as we've put that above what it means to be a child of God. And it's time for the people of God to repent of that idol and put God first. We must think like the people of God. And how do the people of God follow the faithful from before us and coming alongside those who need help? Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And so within that, that leads to the last thing. We must be people of mercy and grace and generosity. We must be people of mercy and grace and generosity. And I think the most practical thing to process that, I mean, just even thinking about what it means to live in the city, is I already read the verse, but go back to Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Now, anybody in here harvest a crop in the last couple months? Anyone? I, I, yeah, so one or two, it's actually very impressive. Um, the majority of you said no, right? But you did bring in a harvest. Anybody get paid in the last month? You got a harvest. You had bills to pay. You had to eat. You had to clothe yourself. You might have had a medical expense. You had all those different things. But at the end of the day, when all of that was done... There might have been a really, 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 really little bit left. There might have been a whole lot left. Some people, there wasn't enough. And so what do we do in those situations? Well, 
if you did all of that, I think that as far as what, it, what is this telling us and what does it mean to be the people of God and what do we see Jesus teaching about is some of the parables and even what we see in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, the reality of generosity. And so within my budgeting, within my expenses, within the resources I do have, am I setting aside something? Am I utilizing something to help people who are in need? And how you do that might be different than somebody else in here. You might say, you know what? I have this much money that I bring in every two weeks and this is all that I have as far as the budget and on things I'm responsible for and I still go and do things that are fun, but I'm going to take this amount and I'm going to use it to help people every two weeks. And you know what? The way I'm going to use this is that there's this one guy that I see all the time and I'm going to get him some shoes or I'm going to give him this or there's this group of people that have some tents over here and I'm going to start, I walk past them, I'm going to just say hi and drop off some food and maybe get to know their name and get to know them. That's how you spend your money. Or maybe you give part of it to an organization in the city that's helping with those type of a people. Whatever it might be, but you have a portion of the margin that you're not just banking to go and use on more stuff that you don't need to actually help people. But I worked really hard on all of this. And why do I have to give my stuff to people who haven't done nothing? First off, it's not your stuff. It's God's stuff. And the very fact that you have the ability, strength, and breath to work the way that you do is a gift from God. And that's the reality is that we wouldn't have anything that we have without God's grace. The very act of saying, I'm going to give a portion to somebody and not just assume that the fact that they need it is because they're irresponsible, but I'm going to come and get to know them and give freely of generosity is you acknowledging not all of this is mine and the only reason I have it is because of him. And so to say that attitude is a wrong attitude about the reality of God in your life. We have to be people who are generous. And one of the biggest, I mean, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Put a thermometer in. There's a temperature. That's a symptom. You're sick. One of the biggest symptoms of ungodliness is a lack of generosity. To not be able to extend help to somebody, to never be willing, is a lack of holiness and a lack of love for the Lord. And so what, just in a really practical sense, and the reason why I'm honing in on this idea of this one simple practical thing is sometimes we can go hyperbolic and say, well, you just, God wants me to sell everything I have and never be able to do anything else, and it's wrong. No, that's not what God doesn't say any of that. Take the margins. And what can you do to make help people? Because the reality is, again, in our hyper-individualistic world, we forget the reality of a community. And that was what Jubilee did, is it reset the community and made the community better. And Christians are supposed to be the light, salt and light of the world to make the community better. And when we come alongside people, not just here's some money, go do whatever you want with it, but come alongside people and help them become the people God wanted them to be, we're making the community better. We're making the world better when we come alongside people and help. We cannot have this simplistic reality of we can't give people stuff because they're not going to work anymore or they're not going to do this. Do not make the worst scenarios you can come up with as an excuse to not help everybody else. What does it look like? 
for you to use what God has given you to come alongside people to help who so desperately need it. What does it look like for the God who has shown you mercy for you to extend mercy to others? Because this is what we're called to do. We are called to be people who proclaim liberty. And yes, the ultimate reality, the life that people need is within Jesus and to find life in him. Some people are going to reject our call for that. They're going to reject our invitation to that. We're going to explain the reality of how Jesus is the one who forgives our sins and gives us life. They'll reject that, but you can still help them because they rejected it in this moment, but they're still alive. And even your response to their rejection is a testimony of grace and mercy. And so what does it look like to continue to come alongside people? What does it look like for you to be a part of what God is doing? And he has given you so much. And so how can you bless others with it? Here's the last thing, though. There's a reality that this passage tells us when some of your brothers become poor. And so it says within this, there are going to be some amongst you that get into a situation where life is hard, where life is difficult, where it's not making, it's not, ends aren't being met. And it's not from lack of trying. It's not from irresponsibility or anything like that. It's just, this is how life works sometimes. And if that's the thing, what do we see in this community? Is the community helping people like that in whatever help looks like in a discerning, wisdom, holy way. And so we talked about if I only have a little, if I only have a lot, I should still use the margins to help. But if you're one of the people that need help, I want to challenge you. It is not a thing of weakness to admit that. It is much a thing of godliness and holiness to acknowledge you need help as it is an act of godliness and help, holiness for somebody to help you. And so what is, the very act of saying, I'm in a place where I need some help is about as gospel as you could get. <laughs> Because we all need the reality of the Lord. We all need his grace and mercy. And so if that's you, it doesn't mean you have to make a big public stand on the stage. And t- we, if you go scan the QR code, uh, I'm almost positive there's a link on there for benevolence or for help. Or if it's not, send me an email. My email's on the back of the bulletin. That'll come to me. I'm the only one that'll see it. If you give me permission to, I'll share it with the leadership team. We'll send you the benevolence form. It's a private thing. So there are people in this place who have received help, who needed help, that none of you needed to know about, but you helped. And there's no reason why that can't continue. It is a holy thing to acknowledge. I honestly need some help right now. And the reality is, I've been around this place to know that this is a place that God has brought a lot of generous people. And when I think about the reality of the year of Jubilee, and I think about this chapter, I get excited about, you know what, this does remind me of my church, of knowing that there are people in this place. If you say that there's a need, if you say that something's going on, even if they don't know who the person is, they're going to come around and want to help in that way. So know, if you're in here and you're struggling with how to be generous, you're in a good place because there are people who will show you how to be generous. And if you're struggling, you're in a good place because this is a place where full of care and generosity of people who want to show you the love of Jesus. Not just reality, this truth of it, but tangibly.
We all need help. And God has called us to be people of help as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much. Um, God, I thank you for how you care for me and how you care for this church. I thank you that uh, you know the ins and outs of every need that we have. The financial stuff, the health stuff, the relationship stuff, whatever it might be, God. I pray that you would humble us, that we would come to you. God, I pray that you would help all of us acknowledge that, as we sang earlier, we're poor and powerless. God, I thank you for the grace which you bestow and which you give, and I pray that you would help us to not only be receivers of it, but conduits of it. God, I pray that you would help us to make you our main identity and nothing else. Forgive us for the times when we put worldly things into place. Help break down the idols in our lives, God. God, let us be people who proclaim your good news, that you have come to save sinners. Thank you, Jesus, for everything. In your name we pray, amen. Um, if you want to stand with us, we're going to close in one last song. And as we do, I just want to say that there's a connection card in the pew.